On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Six days after his release from a New York prison, Tupac Shakur is holed up in the control booth of a dimly lit Tarzana recording studio. Bobbing his head and grinning, the 24-year-old rapper turns up the volume on a duet called Two of America's Most Wanted, which he just finished with label mate Snoop Dogg, also known as Calvin Brodus, who at that time which was October of 1995, was scheduled to stand trial in Los Angeles Superior Court for murder. Criminal charges can be a career ender, especially for celebrities, but not in the case of the rap singer who calls himself, quote, Snoop Doggy Dog. A judge in Los Angeles refused today to drop murder charges against him, but the charges haven't hurt his career. In fact, some accuse the rapper of making crime pay, as Reed Galen reports in tonight's Eye on America. As Calvin Broadus leaves the court where he has just appeared on murder charges, little kids clamor for his autograph. They know him as rapper Snoop Doggy Dog. I'm just an inspiration. You look to me as inspiration. A chilling thought to critics of music ripe with violence and to the family of the victim. My brother has become just a nameless, faceless commodity in the interest of record companies profiting from his blood. Murder was the case that they gave me, I'm innocent. For almost two years, Snoop has been out on a million dollars bail paid by Death Row Records, which has sold $80 million worth of Snoop Doggy Dog. Whatever it takes to sell records, it's good. Murder sales. That's why people do videos on sex and murder. These criminal charges against you, somebody could see that as good publicity. Not necessarily because I'm not happy that someone ended up dead and I got to go to court for this. It is the 14th song Shakur has recorded since emerging from behind bars. Death Row Records, which recently signed a contract with Shakur, posted $1.4 million bail on October 12th of 1995 to spring the rapper from Rikers Island, where he was serving up to four and a half years for two counts of sexual abuse. The charges stemmed from a 1993 incident at a Manhattan hotel in which Shakur and an associate were convicted of holding a female fan down while a third man sexually assaulted her. Shakur at the time denied the allegations but was advised by his attorney not to discuss the case during his first interview since his release. Those passages I just read, Chuck Phillips wrote and published on October 25th of 1995, and a few things are evident right away. First, this was the height of hip-hop journalism across the country. There were many journalists who could have been picked to do this Q&A. How and why was Chuck selected by Suge Knight? 
to be the first journalist to interview Tupac upon his release from prison? And second, what lawyer in their right mind would allow anyone with an open rape case to speak with anyone from the media? And lastly, the article is factually incorrect. Tupac was not released from Rikers Island. He was released from the Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York. It was at this time in 95 that the relationship between Chuck Phillips and his obsession with Suge and Death Row Records started. Suge Knight was cold and calculating, and any journalist around him at that time would have been part of a quid pro quo. Or they would have been intimidated by Suge with threats of violence. But Suge trusted Chuck. But more importantly, Suge understood the power of the LA Times and what it could do for him and for his record label and artist. This was pre-internet. So anything printed in the LA Times would have been accepted as gospel. And that paper showed up on doorsteps across the state of California. It was a match made in heaven, no doubt. The Los Angeles Times is the largest metropolitan daily newspaper in the country, with more than 40 million unique LATimes.com visitors monthly, Sunday print readership of 1.6 million, and a combined print and online local weekly audience of 4.4 million. Through 2014, the Times had garnered 41 Pulitzer Prizes. This includes one each for news reporting for the 1965 Watts riots and the 1992 Los Angeles riots. In 2004, the paper won five prizes, which was the second highest number by any paper in one year. The more interesting component of the article was the actual headline. It read, I am not a gangster. Well, Tupac was right theoretically about that statement. He wasn't a gangster, but in the studio that day, fresh out of prison, Tupac was surrounded by gangsters. And it's no secret that as a part of Death Row Records, he would cultivate gangster imagery and lyrics. He would act out his gangster fantasies and that first article post-release is a staged move by Shook, savvy, calculating as always and playing many angles. Chuck was the perfect vehicle to funnel information as hip hop music would explode into the global mainstream. Chuck as a journalist would have a front row seat to the most successful and most violent record label ever created. Six foot three, 335 pound Marion Knight, known by the nickname of Shook, short for sugar. Afraid? Afraid of him for sure. Yeah, he's no he's nobody to mess with. I think the guy is a is a serious major gangster. At the age of only 30, and with a lengthy criminal record, including three felony convictions, Suge Knight has managed to become the head of a hundred million dollar record company and one of the most powerful and feared men in the American music industry. All these allegations are lies. Lies? Lies. The still unsolved murder of Shakur, who portrayed his own death in this music video released after the killing, 
has focused new attention by law enforcement officials, including the FBI, on the violent, big-money world of what is called gangster rap. And in particular, on the role of its behind-the-scenes king, Suge Knight, and his fabulously successful company, Death Row Records. Come to Death Row. The first year of Death Row Records, uh, we came out, we generated a billion dollars. How much? A billion dollars the first One year. One billion? Yeah, for the first year. In these early articles, Chuck again is focused on the music, which was the vocal point of his career. And it's clear. There is unique access for a white middle-aged journalist who was covering hip-hop's biggest rising star and a record label that would become a cultural behemoth. Death Row Records orchestrated by Suge and backed by the Brooklyn-born and bred Jimmy Ivey would not only take hip-hop to the stratosphere, but would stun the music business and popular culture. With Chuck's front row seat at that time, what he didn't realize was that it would also bring him deeper into the many divisions and street beefs that existed at that time in South Central Los Angeles. Sugar and Dre, they came in to play me the chronic. You know, John McClain brought them in. I didn't know a lot about hip hop, you know, and but I came from a rock world, really. And and when I heard J uh, Dre do it, it sounded like something between like when I first heard Sgt. Pepper, when I first heard Pink Floyd, it was like, mm -hmm. or Phil Spector, anybody who broke ground sonically. And I said, this guy's broken ground here. I mean, if he can, it, this 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 guy really can do something great, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and he, it, he actually did. What, he, what I was listening to was great, but yeah, that's why I did it, you know, and I felt that, okay, and it, it just got so, first of all, no one's doing this stuff in your house. You know, yeah. I would have sugar the guys out to my house all the time, mm -hmm. saying things like, okay, I don't understand this. I don't understand these issues because every criminal I've ever met in my life mm -hmm. or saw in a movie wanted to be a legitimate businessman. Mm -hmm. You guys are the ultimate legitimate businessmen, earning tens of millions of dollars a month. Mm -hmm. What's with all the noise? You know, and it just, it just got out of hand. And yeah. we couldn't, as you see in that episode, we couldn't, we couldn't put a lid on it. Be less than a year after Chuck wrote that article, that Tupac Shakur is killed in Las Vegas. In researching online, I can't find any articles written by Chuck on the actual homicide in Vegas at that time. But in October, almost a month after Tupac's controversial passing, Chuck does a deep expose titled, The Doctor Unmasked. The tagline of the article is interesting the heels of the death of Tupac. It reads, after a soul-searching jail stint, rap icon Dr. Dre left his death row records empire and tossed off the gangster image. Is there a place for nice guy Andre Young in this biz? Now again, Chuck somehow embedded with Dr. Dre, as he describes in the article. Dr. Dre, the acclaimed rapper and record producer, flashes a grin in his new video as he watches the sun set from a luxurious corporate high-rise. Decked out 
in an immaculately tailored Italian suit, the Grammy-winning star has donned a new look in Been There, Done That, a farewell song to the gun-toting mentality that critics once accused him of glorifying as one of the architects of gangster rap. We got 20 minutes. On the planet Earth, talk that hard wood, cause that's all they worth. Huh. I've been there, I've done that. You got guns, yo, I got straps. A million mother on the planet Earth, talk that hard wood, cause that's all they worth. Song was written and recorded just months before Tupac was gunned down in Vegas. Tupac was a passenger inside the car driven by Suge, Dre's partner in Death Row, who Dre decided to sever ties with. In the article, in what I think is a genius PR move, Dre states, it's hard for me to believe that Tupac is no longer with us. It's a real tragedy. He says this while watching the video on a monitor in his new Sherman Oaks recording studio. He was a real talented individual, and I feel very bad that it all had to end like this. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work, and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special, or you and the wife need a scintillating night out, every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. The one question that still remains today is how close he was to Suge and Tupac. What does Dre know about that night in Vegas? I think you'd be hard pressed to find anywhere what Dre said about that particular night. I mean, that was like um, terrible loss because he was a very talented person, you know? Um, one of the most talented people I've worked with, you know, in the studio. He was real, real fast in the studio and knew exactly what he wanted. You know, he was a good producer. Also, a good actor. You know, you, don't, you can't find that. You know, you can't find somebody that can really, really rhyme, get in the studio and get down, and also, also be a good actor. You know, that's rare. You know, so that was a great loss to the entertainment business. 
Yeah. What about you personally? What was your relationship like? Because I know he was saying some harsh things about you. Yeah, personally, um, there was nothing there between me and Tupac. There was nothing there, you know. What he was saying about me was all hype because he knows absolutely nothing about me except what he hears and reads. You know, we never, we've never hung out. We've never even went to dinner, you know. The only place we've been together at is in the studio and on the video set. That's it. Dre is and was one of the most savvy, calculating players in all of hip-hop. And he knew the violence swirling around death row. Now, Chuck's angle in the article seems like a play to his corporate overlords, and Phillips is a willing participant. Dre is quoted in the article. I think everyone involved in hip-hop needs to kick back and realize that this is just a business. It has nothing to do with real gangsterism. As for me, I don't want anything to do with all that violent BS. I'm not down with negativity. I got my eyes on positive things. We got our own little world. We doing our own shit. Either motherfuckers riding with us or they riding against us. Ain't no in between. Either you with us or against us. Those who with us, we got love for you. Those who not with us, you don't even exist. You know, it ain't like a motherfucker say, damn, I hate them, I don't like them, I don't even know you. You're nothing. So that's the way how we do it. And anybody got a problem with it, you know, we do it. <laughs> this was a direct shot at Suge, who's always thrived on creating this mythical gangster-like reputation. And guess what the irony of this article actually is? When Dr. Dre walked from Death Row Records, Suge kept all his master recordings. So Dre doing this mea culpa in the LA Times, forsaking his gangster resume and looking to the future, would have just been another Machiavellian maneuver supported by the journalism of Chuck Phillips. And talking with some death row sources, it also was a way Suge could keep tabs on Dre. At the end of the day, the more fame Dre got, no matter where he was, the dollars in Suge's pocket expanded as the owner of Dre's catalog of music, just like his ownership in all of Tupac's masters at that time. The next graph in the Times article sounds like a press release for Dre's next incarnation away from Suge. It states... The man who scandalized the nation in the 80s with violent and misogynistic music as a member of the Compton group NWA is now also planning to direct TV sitcoms and full-length motion pictures. You put out negative energy, it's going to come back to you, period. Live by the gun, die by the gun. It just stopped being fun, and this whole thing is supposed to be fun. That's what I always dreamed about doing, doing something that I can have fun at and make money at it, make a living. I had to get up and out. I think the creative freedom and the, the room to breathe and to call your own shots is more important than money. You know, Dre left that Afro and many people say, well, he's leaving with nothing. He left with everything. I didn't leave broke, you know what I'm saying? I did leave with, with money. I didn't leave with what I was supposed to, but I left with something that was a lot more valuable, peace of mind. And you can't put a dollar sign on that. 
It might be hard to actually pinpoint exactly when Chuck decided to start to manipulate the truth and go down a deep and dark rabbit hole inside the East Coast versus West Coast strife. But in the second half of this article and puff piece on Dre, there's a series of paragraphs that starts to indicate to the reader what would become Chuck's obsession. And that was the battle between hip hop and the cops and the LAPD and the NYPD, FBI, and even the DEA. In Chuck's writing, I think this is where, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, his career in journalism shifted. And I quote, From the start, Death Row has represented a dramatic confluence of violent art and violent reality. The company has raised eyebrows in the music industry, not only because it was the first rap label to consistently dominate the pop charts, but also because of a flurry of violent incidents associated with its stars and management. Dre's controversial music caused a public furor last year after violent and sexually explicit lyrics and songs that he produced for such artists as Snoop Dogg set off a political uproar that caused the Time Warner Corporation to dump the label's distributor, Interscope Records. Succumbing to months of pressure from Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole and media watchdogs, Time Warner Incorporated decided Wednesday to get out of the gangster rap business. The New York media giant announced it will unload its $115 million stake in the successful but controversial Westwood-based Interscope Records, home to such award-winning rap stars as Snoop Doggy Dogg and Dr. Dre. Time Warner executives denied that the firm was bowing to political pressure, blaming the split on contractual provisions that prevented the company from monitoring the content of Interscope's recordings. The money that Suge and Dre and Jimmy Iovine were all making was astounding at that time. So one has to question, what put the fear of God inside Dre to just pull up stakes? Dre's own 1992 The Chronic made an estimated $50 million in retail sales. Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style made $63 million. And Tupac's 1996 Double CD made $65 million and still growing, a grand total of $178 million. So why did Dre walk away? In the article, his response is brilliant. A quote for the ages. Stop being fun, he states, sitting at the mixing console of his 48-track home studio. I got frustrated with the whole environment. All of a sudden, the studio was packed with strangers. And me, I don't like working in a room full of people. I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable. That quote is a bit laughable, as everyone knew that Suge was surrounded by the hierarchy of the mob Hyrule blood gang at that particular time. So Dre's use of strangers is interesting and calculated. Now, what is striking about this article on Dre is throughout the whole thing, there is not one mention of Suge's many run-ins with law enforcement at that particular time. Night and other death row associates have said in interviews that they were disappointed in Dre because he didn't show up to support Snoop at his murder trial earlier in the year. We the jury in above entitled action find a defendant, Calvin Brodus, 
not guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree. I'm curious, what was going through your mind at the time that the jury was reading the verdict? I left it in God's hand, Abby. That's why I looked at so stone-faced. I was just, I didn't have no expressions. You know what I'm saying? It was all in her. I prayed on it. My family prayed on it. David Kenner, you know what I'm saying, put on the bomb, bomb case. Donald Ray, Marsha Morrissey, Paul Palladino, the whole dream team. They did what they were supposed to do and they gave the baton to the jury and I couldn't do nothing but just bank on them and worry about what the outcome was gonna be as far as to just sit there and, and hold my position and, and keep my head up high and just, you know, wait for the outcome. In the final paragraphs of the Dr. Dre article, this is where Chuck in a nuanced way shows his cards, shows his hand and whose pocket he was in at that time. And it clearly was Suge. His only mention of anything negative is an investigation that I'm actually privy to and have a ton of research on. But the way Chuck approaches it, it's an arbiter of things to come in his work. The graph reads, in the months preceding the breakup, Knight privately criticized Dre's working habits, complaining that he did not produce enough music for death row. Knight even showed up unannounced one night at Dre's house with a group of death row associates and demanded that Dre turn over the master recordings of death row songs. Suge has also stated that Dre walked away from death row empty handed. Further, Dre says he has no knowledge of a reported FBI investigation into alleged gang related drug trafficking activities at death row and discounts rumors in the rap community that his departure caused bad blood. Not saying anything, you know, for trying to put Dre down as a person. Dre's departure wasn't a loss. Two reasons. I mean, one of the reasons, it was the greatest thing in the world for me. I mean, if you have a multi-million dollar company, maybe worth a billion dollars or so, and you own it 100% and don't have a partner, and you'd have to give him nothing, but his walking papers, that's great. Wow. So that was a negative. And Das and all the other little producers and the Sass and all the ones we have, and they did the tracks. Dre wasn't doing the tracks, and Dre didn't write the lyrics, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a loss. I mean, Dre didn't do California Love, basically. So that wasn't a loss at all. With that article printed in the LA Times, it is my contention that in 1996, October to be precise, would be the last time Chuck was unhindered by the sinister connections, relationships, and quid pro quo that would engulf him. And that would put him in bed with the LAPD, with other nefarious connections, and would lead to him being compromised for reasons I don't even know right now. On March 10th of 1997, Chuck Phillips, along with journalist Cheo Hadari Coker and Eric Lichtblau, would investigate and write the article wherein Chuck's career would never return from. This archived piece in the LA Times reads as follows. Gangster rap performer, Notorious B.I.G. slain. 
What I need to do next is dive into this reporting and timeline. There is no one anywhere who knows or has seen more evidence and information on this murder. And what I am curious about is can I finally see the evidence of Phillip's lies and pinpoint the exact errors and omissions and determine how and why the other writers and editors at the LA Times allowed Chuck Phillips to get away with what I feel is criminal, reckless, and would have enduring and lasting effects on why the murders of Tupac and Biggie remain unsolved. Chuck Phillips, in, in certain articles of the lies that he wrote, that my boss has finally said, we're no longer talking to this person because after he wrote several false stories about me and about this case, we gave him the unprecedented access to where he did a conference call with all my bosses, including our attorneys and our press information people, all the way up to the assistant director. And he wrote an article based on that meeting uh, the following day, and he completely misquoted our number three in charge uh, at the LA office, who became furious with that article. And that's when I went to him, I said, yeah, now you know what I've been dealing with because he writes these false articles. So they said, no more dealing with the LA Times and Jeff Phillips. 